2 Samuel chapter 7. I've entitled this sermon, Your Story and God's Kingdom. I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses, all the way to verse 22, and I'm going to pray together, and we're going to ask the Spirit of God to move us. I'm really excited about this passage. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel? which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, And will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. And I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever." In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? Gotta love it that he speaks in the third person. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. Church, this is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, We need you to teach us. We need you to instruct us. And we're asking right now in this moment, in the midst of our busy and often very distracting lives, that you would give us 
ears to hear what it is that you want to say. As we are making choices, as we are making plans, even now, even this morning, for this coming week and for our future, God, would you bring us to a place where we yield all of our plans to you and we seek to hear your voice and gain your wisdom and your clarity. We need it, God. If in any way we have turned aside from you, correct us and bring life in our very souls. Spirit, would you be our teacher? We ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. When I first became a Christian, I spent a lot of time apologizing. Because the way that I had lived, I had made many, many decisions that hurt a lot of people. And yet for the longest time, I was completely unaware of this. I thought that my decisions were totally justified. After all, I was living for myself, a a message which culture tells us to do every day, like do it for yourself, do it for your own name. And therefore, I saw nothing wrong with the choices that I would make and using a friend or making a bad decision over here. I was living for myself. But it was when... I was eventually confronted with the very gospel of God. When I was confronted with the word of God, I realized that I was making wrong choices because I was living for the wrong story. I was living for a story of the universe that had me at the center and therefore everything was all about me and other people existed, you know, for me. And many of you perhaps have had your own experience where you're just at the center of everything and the way in which you make choices has you at the center. Well, that's how I was living. And I was making all these wrong choices because I had the wrong story. Well, Friends, the Bible tells us the true story about God and the true story about ourselves. And we only discover our purpose when our story is connected to God's. There's a Christian uh, English professor who wrote these words. He said, the true Christian is not just someone who believes certain things. He is someone who participates in a divine human narrative. The overarching story into which all of our individual stories can be grafted and from which they derive their meaning. See, so often we ask the question, okay, God, here's my story and where do you fit into it? But friends, if we're doing that, we're asking the wrong question. It should be, what is God's story and where do I fit into that? Uh, Pastor Britt has taught me this for years, and I know he's taught that in this church, that we don't ask the question, well, here's my mission, God, where do you fit in that? The question is, God, what is your mission, and where do I fit into that? That is the question you and I need to ask today. How do we connect to God's bigger story? And then, how does that shape our plans? How does it shape how we're thinking about next week and next month and 2016? And then, how do we find the ability to live that out? Well, the life of King David, specifically here, we see this play out in action. See, the beautiful thing about the Christian gospel is that it not only provides us with the ultimate purpose, it provides us with the power to live within it. Because in Christianity, you not only connect to the ultimate story, you actually get to meet the author. And that is what happens, friends, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David gets to actually meet the author. One commentator writes of this chapter that it is the dramatic and theological center of the book's first and second Samuel. 
containing one of the most crucial theological statements found in the entire Old Testament. In fact, it contains one of the longest recorded speeches of God's word since the time of Moses in the Exodus. So here, as we've been in the middle of our series, here, halfway, we come to one of the most crucial points in the story of King David. His envious, murderous, and crazy father-in-law, King Saul, the one who had rejected God yet tried to hold on to his throne, he has fallen on his own sword in the midst of a great battle with Israel's enemies. He took his own life. Now, David, the one who has been hiding in caves, now finds himself in a palace. And to give a little more of the backstory, a little bit more context to chapter 7, let me read this to you out of 2 Samuel chapter 5. Then it says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. There has been this tension building up to this moment. God had chosen David to be king, and yet David was in the wilderness season, like we talked about last week, for almost 10 years. He had to live on the run for his life, away from King Saul, wondering, like many of us do when we're in difficult seasons of life, wondering, will God's promise come to pass? Will God make good on his promise? These are questions that we often ask in difficult seasons, and finally, David is brought out of the wilderness and into the palace. And when he was, he was anointed as king and all of Israel threw this big epic party. But the scene in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that the hype has died down, the party has ended, the confetti is getting swept up on the streets of Israel, and now there is peace from all of their warring enemies. And there are several lessons that can be learned from King David in his season of peace. Now, this is actually very important because we've been talking about so far in this series how God often shapes our character during very crazy times. But here's just a a fun little side note. God not only shapes us in times of chaos, he also shapes us in times of calm. And I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. Because you might have gotten the impression that, man, only if I'm going through it and everything's crazy, then my character is going to be shaped. Well, the good news is that even in times of calm and times of peace, God is, is still at work. And we see this happening here in David's life. And I want to point out three lessons. I want to look at them under three headings. Our plans, God's promise, and the prayer of faith. So first of all, let's talk about our plans. What do we learn from David in this season he's in about our plans? See, Israel had been oppressed by all kinds of enemies, but now David is king, and he's experienced great success in stopping all of these enemy forces. See, so far in our story, the pace has been really quick, it's been pretty wild, and then all of a sudden, the action stops. But we are mistaken if we think nothing important is taking place. Stability was coming, not only for David, but for the nation of Israel. And in that moment, 
as everything's dying down, he's like, okay, I'm king. I've been waiting for this moment. He has this realization. And his realization teaches us about our plans. First of all, they must be humble. When we make our plans, whether it's for tomorrow, next week, or next year, they must be humble. Look at David's uh, response to this time of calm in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. David here is concerned about how the the presence of God will be manifested among the nation of Israel. See, in the Old Testament, we discover that the ark was this vessel that represented God's presence on the earth. And the ark was carried around by the armies of Israel from place to place. And it is here now in this moment of calm that David's beginning to ask, well, how can we set up a permanent space for the ark? Now, I want you to see what's driving David's question. Why is he concerned about the ark? Why is he so concerned about building a temple? Here's why. David's asking the question, will God be with me? David's asking the question, will God be with us? How can we be sure? Are we going in the right direction? Learn from David. He recognizes the need for God's presence. And friends, that is a good thing. See, it would be very easy for us. In times of trials and in times of suffering, we pray like crazy. Flat tire, we're like, God, where are you? My tire is flat, I don't know what to do. But in times of peace, when everything's going good, we're like, oh, maybe I should pray. There's a temptation to just disregard our need for God's presence, and yet David doesn't do that. Things are going well, he's got the crown on his head, and yet his first concern is, God, we need a sense of your presence. It was good that he desired this, and so should we, because we ask the same questions. God, will you be with me? Will you be with us? David says, let's build a permanent space for the ark. And in a sense, David's desire expresses the desire of us all. Because there is often great anxiety for me and, and for you. Will God be with us? And how can, we, how can we know that? How can we secure his presence? So David asked this question. And in doing so, he shows us that his plans for the future, they're humble. Are your plans humble? Do you recognize today that even when you woke up this morning and you're thinking about the coming week, Are you aware of your need for God's presence in your life? We must learn from David. And so he has this idea. He has this plan, like we have our plans. Then next, what does he do? He tells it to the new pastor. See, the the previous prophet in town, the, the man of God, was Samuel. He had since died, but now there's this new prophet. His name is Nathan. And David shares this plan with Nathan, showing us, secondly, that when David's making plans, not only are they to be humble, but secondly, they're to be accountable. They're to be accountable. Since Nathan is the new spiritual leader on the scene, he is a prophet. And God has used, we see it in the Old Testament, God uses the prophets as his spokesman. Spokesman. So what is David doing? He's inviting in the truth of God's word. He's saying, I'm not just going to make my own plan, you know, separated from everyone else, separated from God's word. I need to know what God has to say about this. And I want you to see how important this is, especially in the Old Testament context. It is so vital for us to note that God never allowed a king to have ultimate authority. 
God's design was always that if there was a ruler, they always had to be submitted to God's word. They always had to be governed by God's word. God never said, okay, if you're a king in Israel, you get to do whatever you want to do and whatever law you want to create, go for it. God never said that. God said, you need to be obedient to my word. And so the prophets were there for this accountability. They were to draw people's attention to the word of God. God never gave them absolute authority. And for the same is true for us. We are not our own authority. When we make our plans, we must go to God's word. Are you doing that? Are you going to God's word saying, okay, does this line up with scripture? Are we seeking wise counsel from other brothers and sisters within the church saying, does this line up with scripture? Do we sense that God's spirit is leading this, this, this direction? We are accountable people. And therefore we need to go to God's word. Saul, on the other hand, was not accountable. Saul is a picture of someone who doesn't want to yield to God's word, but wants his own plan to go through. And so often we can be in some ways like Saul. We make up this plan in our mind, like I'm going to do this next year. I'm going to move to this new job or I'm going to do that. And, and we don't really go to scripture with an open heart. We try to cherry pick. You ever done that in scripture? Don't raise your hand. Like where you just, you already know what you want to do and you just want to find the perfect, perfect Bible verse for it. Like, oh, I'm going to make this terrible decision. Oh, let's see. Uh, All the promises of God are yes and amen. That's a great verse. I love that verse. God gave me this verse this morning that whatever was in my heart to do, I'm going to do it. Oh, friends, may that not be the case for us. We need to be humble. We need to recognize that God's presence is necessary in our lives. In other words, you and I should be saying today, God, if you're not with me, then I don't want to go. I don't know what it is that you're praying about right now. It could be decisions for your work. Maybe you're considering selling your home, your kids going off to a particular school, or maybe there's decisions you need to make within your circle of friends. Maybe decisions you need to make within this church. I don't know, but what I do know is this. All of us need to say, God, if you're not going that direction, I don't want to go. And that requires humility. That requires you and I saying today, God, I want to be with you. I need your presence. And therefore, I want to be accountable. I want to go to your word. I want to, I want to invite it in, not just resist it, not cherry pick what we like and dislike. Because, you know, it's so easy to just, you know, manipulate whatever story you're reading. You're like, oh, yeah, anything that's convicting, that's not for me. That's for my spouse. Right? Have you ever been in church and there's like this, this word, you know, like, you need to love your spouse, and you're just thinking of the other one? Like, no, I'm loving them perfectly. They're the one that needs to get their act together. It happens. Maybe so far in the series, you're identifying with David. You're like, yes, I'm like David. Like, Saul, never. Really? Let's admit, we're more like Saul than we care to admit. We need to be accountable. Like James says in the New Testament, chapter 4, he says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Just sit with that for a moment. You don't know. I don't know. You are just a vapor, he says, that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, as you're making decisions, as you're crafting your plans, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Just look at that last sentence for a minute. If the Lord wills, we will live. Just pause. Like, I'll be alive tomorrow if God wills. That's sobering. And then we will also do this or that. 
So David gives us a model here for us, how we should make our plans. We, we go to God, recognizing God, if you don't go with me, I don't want to do this, and I need this, to, I, I want to line up with your words. So that night, David has a plan. I want to build this house. He tells it to Nathan, and Nathan's like, so good, David, love it. Call me tomorrow. Was Nathan just in a good mood? You know, was he just going to say yes to anything in that moment? You know, like, my kids, they know. My children know. The most strategic time to ask for something that will probably be forbidden is when mommy and daddy are distracted. They're like, wait for mommy and daddy to be distracted. Oh, daddy's on the phone. Hey, daddy, can I have candy? And I'm like, sure. And my wife's like, honey, I just told him no. I'm like, I don't know. I just said yes. We don't know where Nathan was at. David's like, I want to build a house. Nathan's like, so good, David. Great. Call me tomorrow. But that night, God speaks to Nathan and gives David a word that changes everything. Nathan just said, here's the building permit. The next day, God shows up and he revokes the building permit. And there's a couple of reasons for that, and they are actually quite remarkable. First, God says no to David's request. Just sit with that for a moment. Sometimes when God answers prayer, it is a no. God says no to a permanent structure because, and here's the point he makes in verses 6 through 7. He's reminding David, he's reminding Nathan, he's reminding us that we have a God who dwells with and moves among his people. Look at what God says in verse six. For have I not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day? But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel. Did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, he's reminding David, and he's reminding us, we have a mobile God. We have a God who doesn't just send us away somewhere else to do something. For the truth is this, friends, whenever God sends us, he sends us with himself. And doesn't that bring great encouragement to your heart? Wherever God, I know it does for me. Wherever God is sending you, he doesn't send you by yourself. He sends you with himself. He's reminding us of this here. At this point in the story, the nation is not fully yet stable. Someday, there would be a temple, but not yet. And God wants David and us to remember that he is a mobile God. He dwells with and moves among his people. But there's a second reason. There's a second reason why God said no on this night. But we don't actually learn about it in this chapter. We learn about it much later in David's life. When David is older and advanced in years, and he is reflecting back on this moment, 1 Chronicles gives us a window into that moment, and David retells the story, and we gain more insight. David says, hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for the building. But God said to me, you may not build a house For my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. David gives us more insight. David was a broken man. But nonetheless, that night, though God said no, when God spoke to David, God gave him a word that wasn't just a no, it was actually a life-changing no. It changed the course of David's life, and it will change the course of our life if we understand it. 
In our search for God, wanting to know if he is with us, the next question for us is usually, well, what can I do for God? I want God to be with me. I want to know if he's in this decision or not. So usually the next question in our minds is, well, what can I do for God? Can I do, go do some good work this week and then I'll know that God is with me? See, in the ancient world, that's what the idea was. If you build it, he will come. If I go out and if I do all these things for God, then I would somehow, someway obtain his favor. That's what a lot of people thought about gods or in their belief system, the gods, that you would go out and do these great acts and through your great achievement that somehow, someway you could make God favorable to you. And the truth is today, you and I sometimes have that same posture. We envision a God in heaven with his arms folded and not until we have done great acts of achievement and morally good character that God's like, well, well, look who showed up to the party. You actually did something. That's amazing. Maybe now I will hear your prayer. Sometimes that's how we view it. We're like, man, I got to crush it this week in my spiritual life. I'm going to go to the men's thing. I'm going to learn Christian discipline so I can get the answer that I want from God. I want God to be with me. I want to know that he's blessing my plan. So what can I do for God? Back then, it was actually even very common in ancient civilizations to use national resources and tax money to build temples and to enhance the temples so that they could get the favor of the gods. But the truth is this. We, like David, are sinful people. We are broken people. We may not have shed blood as David did, but we are still in sin. And in and of ourselves, we are separated from God and we are unable to connect to God's kingdom on our own. And that is sobering. Psalm 127, verse one says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I want that sentence to just marinate in your heart for a moment. Think about whatever plans it is that you have for your home, for your job, for your family, your finances. I want you to think of whatever it is that you're scheming and planning. And I want you to look at that verse once more. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Think about it as a church. Unless the Lord builds this house, those who labor build it in vain. I I think about this in terms of church planning, like stepping out in faith, recognizing every day, like, God, if you're not in this, it's not going to happen. Unless you build the house. I mean, you can find a million and one books on church planning right now. It's incredible. So if you're interested, they're great reads. There's all these great principles about church planning. Great. But I think that at the end of every book on church planning should be that scripture. And by the way, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build in vain. It's sobering. It's humbling. We want to do something for God that he might be with us. We know we need to be connected to God. We desire his presence. But but how? And so having presented our plans, we must then look to as David did, God's promise. We make our plans. There's nothing wrong with that. We, we write them out. We have conversations. We discuss them. But in that moment, then we must look to God's promise. And God shows up and says, no. But he gives a no in such a way that it ends up being actually a counter promise, which reveals, in fact, the way that you and I can connect to God's kingdom story. See, 
When, when we think, oftentimes we think we can be saved and we can be secured by making a promise to God. How many times have we showed up on a Sunday thinking like, oh man, you're like, God, I'm going to promise to you so hard this week. And like, you're going to come through. Like my promise is going to be amazing. Like we make these grand declarations to God, like this week, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to accomplish this. And thinking that through our promising, we can be secure or that through our promising, we can be saved. Maybe some of you have never actually known Christ and you got invited to church this morning and you're here and you're thinking your default frame of mind is, man, I'm going to come here and I'm going to like make some kind of vow to God and that will change everything in my life. But listen, we often think we can be saved and secured by making a promise to God. But listen, the gospel says the only way you can be safe and secure is by God making a promise to you. David says, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. I am going to build you a house. God's promise here to David foreshadows God's promise to us. What connect, if, because if Christ is real, and if Jesus has come into this world, then these promises are true for us. And what connects our story to God, what secures us, what shapes us in this life is God's promise. And God's promise, why is that? Because it brings unconditional blessings. It's all based on what God can do for you. When we think about us making promises, there's all kinds of things that can ruin that. We might run out of resources or motivation or there's just things outside of our control. But, but God, when he makes a promise, and this promise here is full of unconditional blessings. What are those blessings? First of all, it's a new identity. Notice in verse 9, God says to David, I will give you a name. I will make your name great. And isn't that true for anyone who believes in what God has done for them through Christ? Doesn't the book of Ephesians say that you are the beloved of God? That you are accepted in the beloved, that you're given a new identity, you're given a new name. 1 John 3 says, behold, what manner of love God the Father has given unto us that we should be called what? The children of God. God gives you, as he gave David a name, he gives us a name, a new identity. And secondly, part of God's unconditional blessings is a new home. He says in verse 10, speaking specifically in that context for Israel, I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a place to dwell. And yet, is that also not true for us? It is true for us. God has given us a place. He's given us a church family and a, this amazing inheritance where when we breathe our last, we will be with him amongst his people forever. It's incredible. A new identity, a new home, and thirdly, a new peace. He says in verse 11, I will give you rest. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, God is promising David here a lasting legacy. He says, I will build you a house. That's unheard of. That's unheard of that, that God, that the God who created the universe would say to us, I'm going to build something for you. The theologians call this the Davidic covenant. And it's a huge turning point in the entire Bible. And it, it makes such a stark contrast between the Christian faith and everything else on the planet. And here's why. See, in religion, in religiosity, you're always trying to appease God or you're trying to appease the gods. 
But here in the Bible, God is the one that comes down to us. We turned away from God in our sin and our rebellion. And guess who comes chasing after us? God. He comes after us. And so whatever it is that you and I are to build in this life, it must be built on the foundation of God's promise to us. It's called a covenant, a binding agreement. A promise that, that, that speaks of blessings and all the benefits that go with it. And it's unconditional. It's not based on our ability. It's based on God's ability. But it doesn't end there. It's a divine promise with unconditional blessings and unstoppable power. I love this. Can I get excited about this? Okay. In verses 12 through 13, look at what he says. When your days are completed and you die, essentially my translation, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth and I will establish his kingdom. You know what he's saying? He says, when I make a promise, not even death can beat it. Not even death can beat the promise that God himself makes. And secondly, sin can't destroy it. In verses 14 and 15, God acknowledges that there will come kings in this kingdom who sin and do wrong and who will be in need of correction and discipline. That's true for kings then. It's true for us today. We also are in need of correction. We are in need of discipline when we sin. And yet, sin can't destroy the promise of God. And thirdly, time can't ruin it. You wonder, well, is God going to forget? Maybe God was just like in a happy moment, you know, that one Sunday. He's like, I'm going to make a promise. And next week, he's like, ah, over it. <laughs> like when, when, when we make promises, you ever just been in this moment? You're like, I'm going to promise to all my friends. And the next day, you're like, well, I'm not really going to call them back. <laughs> God, no, this is, this is an eternal promise. Look at what it says in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God's promises. God's promises to us. Death can't beat them. Sin can't destroy them. And time can't ruin them. Now, kings would fail. Discipline would be needed. Time would pass. And so would kings. But when things were bad in the nation of Israel, and when times were bleak, and after decades and decades and even hundreds of years when Israel would go through these, these very difficult times, the people of Israel would actually rally around this promise. They would rally around what they would call this, this covenant that God made with David. They would bring it to remembrance, the story of God acting on behalf of his people. In fact, this speech in 2 Samuel 7 plays a huge part in the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. So when you read the story of Israel to people who were broken over their own sin and their own failure and they had disobeyed God and at one time they were actually kicked out of the land of Israel into a land of captivity and who had experienced evil at the hands of others, God's promise of a kingdom that would endure forever was the seed of hope in their hearts. When things were dark, they would say, but remember that promise? Remember the promise that God made to David? He's gonna come through. And friends, this is, a, this is a model for us. That when things are bleak and when things are difficult, when things are challenging, remember the promise of God. I don't know about you, but when I read the news right now, I just feel like the world is literally falling apart. Yes. <laughs> you just wake up in the morning and it's like, this is happening and that is happening and it's awful and it is terrible. And it's in those dark moments 
that you have to remember the promise of God. In fact, I would suggest practically to you, if you're one of those that likes to read the newspaper or listen to the news in the morning, immediately it must be followed up by Bible reading. This is, this is my charge to you. When you listen to the news, it's like the world's falling apart. Read your Bible and say, wait, no, God's kingdom forever. We must do this. We need perspective. When things are difficult in your lives and in your community, you need to remember the promise of God. In fact, we need to rally around it. Not just highlight it in the Bible and say, oh, that's sweet, that's cute. In your precious moments, Bible. This is a promise of God forever. For all of eternity that God will establish his kingdom. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is God's promise. And it's not based upon my power or your power. When you hear about that verse that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the image there is not of us holding our own weapons and our own banner. We're like, yeah, we're going to storm the gates of hell. It's Christ. It's his power. It is his promise. When we're broken over our own sin, remember God's promise that he will forgive us, that he will renew us, that he will restore us. The people of Israel did. In fact, it was in one of their darkest periods of history that the prophet Jeremiah would say these words. Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute righteousness in the earth. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness, all caps. This shall be his name. Church, the significance of this passage in preparing us for the rest of the Bible cannot be overstated. Some of the promises here in 2 Samuel 7 were fulfilled in David's time. His son, he would later have a son, Solomon. And Solomon would build a temple, but even eventually that temple would be destroyed. But the remaining and ultimate fulfillment would come later. And it leads us to this question of, well, how could such wonderful things be promised to people like us who fail all the time? How could such wonderful things be promised to a man like David who would sin and fail? To a man like Solomon who would sin and fail? How could such wonderful things be promised to us? Here's why. Because God would not bring this promise through a king that needed punishment, but through a king that would take our punishment. God would build his house not according to a king who sheds blood, but based upon a king whose own blood would be shed. God would put the crown in the hands of David's family, generation after generation, until it would come all the way down to the one to whom it belongs, and that is Jesus Christ, the son of David, who in John's gospel, chapter one, tells us that when the son of God came into our world and took on flesh, we're told that he tabernacled amongst us, God with us. We're told that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the defeater of death. Jesus is the builder of the house of God, the possessor of an eternal throne. He claimed it for his, his own. He is the king. Death can't beat him. Sin cannot destroy him. Time cannot ruin his promise. Jesus is alive, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is our righteousness. And now that means that you and I, we become the temple. We become the house of God. We don't need to build just a physical space or a structure in which God can dwell. He dwells in us. That's why the apostle Peter puts it so clearly in his first letter. He says, and you are living stones. You want to talk about where the presence of God is now? 
He says, because of Christ, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. And what's more is you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. We are his temple. We are his building project. We may want to do a marvelous thing for God, and yet God says, what you really need actually comes from me. I know it's really common in, you know, in our church circles to just talk about all the great things we're going to do for God. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But we must always remember that anything that we do for God is built on the great thing he's already done for us. That's where it all begins. Because you and I, you're not saved by doing something great for God. You're saved by what God has already done for you. See, in religiosity, religiosity is based on your power of promise to God. I promise to do this for you, God. I promise to do that. But the gospel is based on God's promise to us. He says, no, this is what I am going to do for you. And so what does David do? And what should we do? When we make all of our plans and we look to God's promise, David simply receives. He simply receives. And so should we. Lastly, we see in David a prayer of faith. What does David do here in verses 18 through 22 at the very end after he hears this long speech about God says, no, you can't build a house. I'm going to build you a house. Your kingdom's going to last forever and I'm going to bring all this redemption. What does David do? We're told there that David went in and sat before the Lord. This may be one of the greatest examples for us from the life of David. He sat before the Lord. See, sometimes we, sometimes what we want to do for God is actually less important than what we don't do for God. Sometimes, you know, many of us, I, I think we're afraid of doing too little. Like, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. And of course, laziness is a huge problem. We'll talk about that in two weeks. Laziness is a huge problem. But having said that, there are times that doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing to do. Where you're just like, oh gosh, God, I gotta do all this stuff for you. I'm gonna build a ladder to heaven. And he's like, shh, I'm gonna build you a house. That's humbling. Because it's not about what you can do. It's not about your effort. What's David doing here? He's sitting before the Lord. Something that, if we're honest in this room, is very hard for some of us. Like we just wanna do and all this activity, but just to sit before the Lord. And he prays this prayer, and it's a model for us. It's a prayer of faith that rests in God's goodness. Do you notice that in David's prayer? What is he doing? He's recognizing that what he has been given is not a reward for his righteousness, but it's according to God's own heart. According to God's own heart, verse 21, he says, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have, on, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. He started out his whole prayer by saying, who am I? Who am I, Lord? Have you ever just stopped and thought how crazy it is that you're even a Christian, if you are? I'm sure most of us would say yes, but I just want you to like sit with it for a moment. Have you ever just stopped and think, who am I? Who am I, Lord, that you would even save me? 
Many of you have probably heard my own testimony. I've shared it in, in times past, but before I came to Christ, just living that horrible lifestyle, worshiping the unholy trinity of sex, drugs, rock and roll, awful, sinning against God, sinning against others. And God stopped me in my tracks, saved me. I go to a Bible school. I meet this beautiful woman who by God's grace is now my wife, 14 years. And even though I'd lived such a horrible, sinful lifestyle, to this day, I just trip out in moments where I look at my wife and I look at my three beautiful daughters and I just think, who am I? Who am I? Like I got home from my little, my, my trip, the short trip last week and my youngest little Paige, she just turned four last week. <laughs> but it's kind of sad because her chubbiness is going away and like her cheekbones are becoming more defined. I'm like, know if I like this. <laughs> like, stay small. But anyway, I come home and she's like, I love you, my beautiful daddy. And I'm like, I don't mind hearing that. <laughs> but it's in those moments I look around and I just think, who am I? Like, I was just a sinful idiot and God saved me. And he's like brought me into his, his church family. He's given me a wife and a children. He called me into ministry. That's crazy. Heaven's still laughing about that. <laughs> Barely graduated high school. Who am I? Have you stopped today and just thought, who am I? Some of you right now, you're entitled. You're like, where's this? And where's my this? And how come the church isn't doing that? How come these people are? Listen, who am I? Who are you? <laughs> who are you? The angels in heaven are like, oh, what are they saying? <laughs> Stop. What about this church? Who are we? You guys realize how blessed you are as a church, what God has done over years and years? Have there been trials and hardship? Yes. Have there been miracles and blessings? Yes, there have. Who are we? Who am I? It may be that the Holy Spirit is just wanting to say to you today, and the reason you're here in church is so that God would just stop you in your tracks so that you could say, who am I? Who am I? Listen, God's God's gift to David did not make David great in his own eyes. God didn't give David a gift and he said, well, I'm awesome. (laughs) He didn't say that. And yet sometimes that's how we we behave. That's how we act. Like God makes this incredible promise. He says, I'm going to give you these gifts or I'm going to give you, you know, these incredible opportunities. And we say, well, I'm pretty amazing. That's so ridiculous. It's all about God. Like whoever goes to the Grand Canyon and says, I'm amazing. (laughs) That's... That's how ridiculous it is for you to hear about God's promises to you and say, I apparently have it all together. No, you don't. We know you. And you don't. It is grace and nothing but grace. And friends, I don't know about you, but I think what I'm going to say when I die, breathe my last and face Jesus Christ, I'm going to say it's grace and nothing but grace that got me here. It is God's grace, his promise. In fact, if anything, it's God's promise that should make him greater in our eyes. His glory greater in our church. Remembering, you can't outgive God. I'm going to give all these things to God. God says, look at what I've given to you. You need to rest in God's goodness today. And as a result, you will rejoice in God's greatness. That's what David did. He said, oh my goodness, because you're so good, I'm declaring you as great. This is amazing. Notice David's concern was not that his own name be praised. His concern was that God's name would be praised. See, here's a test. 
that you're really resting in God's goodness, that you really are saying like, who am I? Here's a test. Sometimes you, have you ever noticed how you might have this good desire to do something for God's kingdom? It might be a totally great, good thing, like a new ministry or using your gifts, but perhaps God had another plan. Are you okay with that? Or how about this one? Maybe God gave you a vision and it's this epic kingdom vision, but then God decides to use somebody else. Are you okay with that? I'm not always okay with that. <laughs> There's times where I'm like, I've got this vision. I'm like, oh, this is so good. And God's like, yeah, I'm going to use that other person. I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's kind of my vision. I mean, God, I was seeking you and you gave me the vision and I had the heart. And I was like, oh, <laughs> kind of envisioned myself being the one like doing the thing. <laughs> See, listen, you know you're really living for God's kingdom when he gives you a vision and he calls somebody else to do it and you rejoice. You say, what I care about is that God's name is great, not my own name. God, I want you to get glory. Was David disappointed that he didn't build the house? Apparently from the story, not. What was more important to him was God's glory, however that happens. So can we say today, God, however, whatever you want to do with my plans, however you want it to work out, I just want you to get glory. See, it's only this deep rest that comes out of this new identity that he gives us. We're the beloved of God. We're accepted. We have the greatest thing in the universe, a relationship with God. And it's because we have rest that we can work. It's because we have a righteousness from God that we can display virtue. It is because we have been connected to God's kingdom by his grace that we can display his character. This is what he wants for us. We have become his new building project through which he declares his glory. Friends, this promise is like a mountaintop that gives us perspective. And it's from here that we make our plans. It's from here that we make our choices. And I would say this to you. Before your hearts are full of what you want to do for God, may they first be full of what God has already done for you believe that's the place that the spirit would want us to just sit today and pray these promises in. That's what we need to do. Like David did. He's just processing it all through prayer. We need to pray God's promises back to him. God, don't you love doing that? God, you said in your word this. And so for your glory, you make it happen because you are amazing. Prayers like what Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, where he said, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly then all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. God, you're the one who's able to do it and you're the one that is gonna get the glory for it. So we must pray. I shared this with you last week when we were talking about prayer meetings. In public prayer meetings, we make our needs public, but when God answers, he makes his glory public. And that's what we should be excited about. That's what we should be desiring. David wanted to build God an earthly house, but God responded by promising an eternal kingdom. And as you wrestle with God's answers, and as you deliver your plans to him in prayer, you are both humbled and emboldened by God's incredible goodness to your life. You're humbled because it's not about you. It's not about your power. It's not about your glory. But you're also emboldened because it's based on God's ability to do it. Because if God's promise for his will is unstoppable, then why won't we trust him in all these smaller things in life? Today, 
I think it's time for us to trade in our plans for God's plans. And I'm calling you today to just take all that you've got in your mind, all that you've got in your heart, the way in which you envision things going, all of your expectations that have been building up over time, I want you to take them and I want you to lay them at his feet today. God, I've been thinking about my job, but your will be done. God, I've been thinking about this, this choice with these people, your will be done. I've been thinking about making this move, your will be done. The question is, are you ready to trade in your plans for God's plans? I hope you are. Because as you do, you can be like David, who's basically said on that day, I've met the author. I've met the author of the ultimate story, and there is no one like him. Therefore, I entrust my story to him. May the Spirit of God bring us to that place. Amen. Father, right now, in this moment, we just, we confess. If in any way we have been trying to author our own stories, making decisions according to our own plans without humbling ourselves, thinking we can do this alone, thinking that we've got this, God, together as a church, we confess our sin. Confess if in any way we've been just building for our own glory, our own little kingdoms. And we just turn to you right now. And we just say, and we declare together, God, what matters is you and your glory. And we're so humbled and our hearts are so full over the promise that you have made to us in Jesus Christ that we will never be forsaken, that you will be with us, that you will guide us, that you will correct us, and that you will safely carry us home. Father, I pray that right now that the posture of every man and woman in this room, including myself, that we would all before you say, who am I? Who am I? That you would grant such blessings to Who am I that you would give and make such incredible promises to? Who are we that you'd give us your spirit? Who are we that you'd give us friendships? Who are we that you'd be giving us a church community? Who are we that you'd give us spiritual gifts? Who are we that you'd give us opportunities? Who are we that you'd give us an everlasting inheritance? So Lord, may we just sit before you bask in your goodness. Rest in it. And if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, I pray that right now they would believe in you. That they would simply say, Jesus, save me. Save me from my sin. Not because of what I've done for you or what I could do for you, but because of what you have already done for me in Jesus Christ who went to the cross for me. Father, may those men and women right now just pray that and receive you as their Lord and Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.